Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria.com. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vaults, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will forever be print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Fangoria.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Nightmare University. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Horror has always been a vehicle for social commentary, even if we're going all the way back to films like Frankenstein and Freaks or moving forward to things like Night of the Living Dead or looking at more contemporary movies like Get Out or The Purge franchise. Horror has always been a fantastic vehicle for filmmakers to give social commentary, to talk about problems with the world, to explore what's really pissing them off and how to kind of begin to unpack it or solve it or or kind of just point out that the problem exists. And so tonight, I'm, we are going to be looking at one specific area of kind of this social commentary. Um, I am joined by Elric Kane, who has been working with me for a long time. Elric and I um, began seven years ago co-hosting a show called Inside Horror. We then co-hosted Killer POV. We now co-host Shockwaves um, on the Blumhouse Network. And we also teach together. Elric and I um, both teach at the studio school and both um, teach horror aesthetics. And so... We, we have always discovered that one of the things that we love discussing together is social commentary and horror. And a couple of months ago, we had um, the honor to be able to present a, a film that is really kind of ripe with social commentary in Phoenix at the film bar in Phoenix. And that's when we started talking about what topic we're going to discuss tonight, and that is 1% horrors, horror movies that focus on financial discrepancies in America that really kind of explore the class system and specifically look at either how the rich is benefiting off the poor or how the poor is trying to achieve more and and kind of the horrors therein. So um, sit back and let's dig into 1% horrors. I will warn you in advance that there are some spoilers therein. Um, in some cases, we do have to talk a little bit about um, what the movie might be or get close to the climax just so that we can explore the social commentary of them. But we usually will give warnings and say, like, jump ahead two minutes as we're about to talk about the climax. But just be aware. But with that, let's talk about 1% horrors. It is my honor to welcome on to Nightmare University, Elric Kane, who I have co-hosted multiple shows with at this point. And you've never said anything about honor in my presence. Right? This is the first. You should be honored. I mean, right? we, we do sit across from each other every week on Shockwaves. Every so. week. So we co-host Shockwaves together. Um, we have also co-hosted Killer POV, and we co-hosted Night uh, Inside, Inside um, Horror. Horror. Yeah. And so we've been like doing this together about for... About seven years, but yeah. for some reason this feels like a different uh, setup because... You're uh, asking me things. I am. So, um, but Elric also has another podcast, Pure Cinema, which I highly recommend uh, checking out. It's um, deep dives and very academic, very much like we do here, but it's all cinema. Yeah, a lot of cult movies, and uh, we do it with the New Beverly Cinema. So, Elric, tell us about the topic that you picked for today. I mean, when we're going back and forth on ideas, something that was popping up a lot to me this year 
was this idea, and I don't know if it's really ever been uh, put uh, formally down as 1% horrors. It's probably been called many things. Uh, political rich, horrors, political yeah. horrors, social um, injustice horrors. Yeah. yeah. I, like I've heard that discussed in a lot of different terms, social inequality horrors. Right. There's so many things. And uh, But this year, obviously in times where we have a lot of political unrest or division, especially, I think, uh, whether they be recessions or wars or uh, there's so many like things. They, they often spark different types of horror, different types of movements, but horror for some reason seems to work overtime during these periods, I think. Oh, yeah. I think it's probably because of the the mixing of satire with entertainment and a veil of entertainment. Completely, yeah. I mean, horror has always been kind of a vessel to, to channel a lot of kind of the political voices through. And that's one of the reasons that I always love horror is whereas you may have movies that are directly about kind of social injustice, horror does that, but it always does it through a different lens. So it's about that, but it's about something else as well. Yeah, and, it's a great Trojan horse. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we are here because we love horror and the politics and, and the satire is probably secondary in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that I feel like would, would never have gone to see a movie like A Get Out, you know, had it just been a social drama. And Completely. It, it's really the horror that got it to the mass audience. Of course, it's the first thing they also then once it became popular, <laughs> pretended it was Now it's a not. comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, Elric and I got to um, talk about uh, 1% horrors this summer, or I guess it was this past spring, we traveled to Phoenix Comic Con, or I guess it's called Phoenix Fan Fusion now. Um, but while we were there, we got invited to the film bar, and uh, we got to host a screening of one of the films that we'll talk about tonight. Right, yeah, yeah. But it's just like uh, there's these fissures. Of, uh, horror films often talk about trauma, and I think people can feel traumatized mm-hmm. in the nation for after all of these things we've been talking about. Obviously, each decade had a different, whether it was like post-Vietnam. We'll get through a lot of the kind of time periods. But yeah. the reason I chose it now isn't because I'm necessarily an expert. And, you know, there's a lot of things I love talking about with horror. But when you start seeing a pattern in something, especially this year, and then you start reflecting because it feels new and you realize, no, this is completely cyclical. Uh, but we just notice it more in times of unrest. And right now we're very, you know, without being even political, everyone can tell we're a very divided yes. nation. And when there's a lot of division, there's a lot of places, to, you know, where things sprout up. Obviously, cinema strays towards the liberal side because of what, because of the people making the most of these movies. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the messages can be portrayed that way. But some of the ones that um, kind of inspired me, I think the first one that uh, many of these I actually saw with you, but uh, we're seeing these trends of the haves uh, the versus haves and the, the have-nots. Have yeah, and we've seen a lot of those this year. And you're right, now that I'm looking at the list, we have seen all of these together. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like the one that we, one of the ones we saw recently was kind of the one that actually really made me on because it's so obvious, which is ready or not, which is the one that I think deals with it most directly because it's yeah. literally her walking around going, oh, my God, I'm marrying these rich people. And and they have overt lines where she's like, you know, screw. I, I don't know if it ends with a line like fuck rich people or but it's something approximate yes. of that. Uh, but it's it's also fun. So they so, of course, they, they go very broad with the comedy. So mm-hmm. they're not it's this, they, you're not going to be this overt but what's interesting about the family in this one to me is what the, one of the notes I was making was like they're pr- showing this upper class group but they're basically buffoons they would exactly. kill her very easily if they want, were at all skilled but it's like watching it's kind of like the um, and so and one theme that runs through all of these a lot of these films is like kind of incestual or inbred type family structures of the elite 
going to back to like obviously royal family. Lineage. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that is definitely kind of grounded in truth, but it's the idea that the rich stay rich and the poor get poorer, yeah. and they do that by you know kind of creating these insular environments. Right. But in this one, what's fun, and the reason why I think it's actually kind of fun to start with, is because they also they're portrayed kind of buffoonish and kind of not the smartest group, but they also believe completely in the superstition. Like they they believe that they have this game that on the wedding night the person has to pick a card and they're they're family who've made their fortune based on the gaming industry um and you know the, they, they pick a card and if it's one particular card uh they have to play this game out this obviously mm-hmm. it's a ready or not here i come game and uh they basically hunt and she has to survive till morning so uh when i watch that and i'm thinking about the satirical elements there's a part of me that goes it seems to be and i'm not necessarily agreeing with it but it seems to be satiring almost evangelical wings wings of groups in this country who believe blindly in something without questioning that thing and it's all or nothing like ride or die on these kind of topics and then somebody coming in as an outsider and seeing quite clearly another theme that runs through it's usually one person sees clearly Mm -hmm. and that's not going to actually help them (laughs) i mean they might survive the movie because of it but it's not going to help them initially that's usually what gets them in trouble is this difference of opinion so ready or not seems pretty overt yeah uh the way it's reading but the one that um another one that we you know that kind of launched this and these aren't the ones we're you know (laughs) towards later going to go deeper but i do think it creates a pathway but us. yeah because we have seen such a chunk of them come out this year yeah. i mean that's definitely you they've become more prominent group. us um you know when we watched it i remember immediately afterwards you and i had a conversation mm-hmm. about how it was 100 percent about the haves and the have-nots yeah. the the people who are given all of these privilege but what i found so interesting about that is even within the people the above ground ones that you were viewing as privilege there's still bifurcation within them where we're looking at this kind of working class family who has bought this used boat, but their friends have this beautiful space and are wealthy, and but their lives are terrible. And so it's it's kind of leveled. It's not even just you're on the top and you're on the bottom. There's levels within that as well. Well, and it's also, I mean, the, the thing that really makes it stand apart is it's a group we've never seen on top. It's African-American family, a, a normal African-American family who are actually doing very well successful financially, and it's just a group you've never really seen as leads in a movie as a family, and I thought that's really interesting. It's interesting to portray them as the, uh, not oppressors, because it's not it never overtly says that, but it has this shadow culture underground that basically seems pretty obviously saying these are the underrepresented, the underclass. Mm-hmm. But th- there's there's elements of this film. I think one of the th- reasons why um, this film is so kind of so fascinating and maybe is better after that first viewing is just there's so many threads that aren't fully answered. A lot of them are quite obvious while you're watching it. Symbolic. The symbols are pretty overt in this film. That's what I saw was a film built of symbols. Yeah. And I tried because um, I remember we saw this and I think that our other co-host Rob saw this with us. And as soon as we left, I was immediately like, how did they all get sandals? Yeah. If there was an escalator, why didn't they just take the escalator? And I had to shut my brain down really quickly yeah. because it is a movie of symbols. Um, yeah. like and, and, and pretty thing. overt. Like, I love it. I, I, I love this movie because it's a big swing, but I, I love the overt ones. Like, oh, it's the rise of America's dark shadow coming back, right? That stuff. The Hands like, Across America yeah, that, that, was definitely in there as kind of a symbolic thing. And to, I remember. Two failed economic policies yes. and whatnot, right? But, but there's, this is something that just was coming to me 
uh, while we started talking about the topic. And of all the things that I kind of was thinking as we were doing this, the thing that most maybe excited me because I'd never thought about it with this movie, but I was thinking about um, the main character. And there's going to be spoilers throughout this episode, so I just hopefully, because you, you really can't analyze these things without, but... There is in most of my episodes. I, yeah. um, Luckily, no one's complained that heavily Well, yet, we're going to go but... deep. But, but I was thinking about her character at the end, and I've heard people talk about everything except this part, and maybe I'm wrong, but like... It's saying something really interesting about leaving a group or leaving a society. She has to continue to wear her mask, which is a lie, she, uh, to to fit into the society that she has chosen to fit into. Mm-hmm. So she, even when her everyone, no one except her son works it out, but she has to continue. She can't ever come clean to exactly who she is. She can't be truthful about her roots, the econo- economic standing of... Uh, imagine, forget it's a horror film, but this could be about somebody who came from the slums, from a lower-class neighborhood, and somehow shacked up with a wealthy person and kind of had to fake it for, to a certain extent. They get married, they have a great life, and is ashamed of those roots and, and doesn't know how to basically come to grips with who I am, where I'm from, versus where I am economically. And I think... I mean, I think coming from someone like Jordan Peele, when you're coming from, you know, a single mother and probably a lower income to suddenly you're a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. I feel like there, I, there's something really personal about that. And the more I start thinking about this veil, this mask she has to continue wearing to fit into the elite society, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And it's something I haven't, you know, I haven't given enough thought to, but it's, it's a part of that, another, just another strand that I think he, he puts so many strands in there. Yeah. There's probably 20 people out there listening to this going, oh, well, what about this part? Yeah, there are. And that's one of those movies where every single time I think about it, um, that there's moments where I question, where I'm like, the rabbits, did, how did they clean up all the rabbit mess? Right. But then there are other times where I'm like, oh, I get it. They're b- rabbits, like literally herds. And yeah. yeah it's so it, it there's so much going on in that movie yeah. and i don't want to think about it as like a plot issue i want to think of it as symbolism and, and it's important like even though we're spending an episode like this to analyze some of the satire and some of those elements it's also worth knowing both of those they're deeply entertaining movies mm-hmm. so it's like it's it's you know one of the things you have to be most careful with with this is being on the nose so it feels political first and then entertaining no this has to entertain and be fun first and let you think in the spaces between. Which brings us to another one of the movies from this year that at first I wouldn't have even put this on the list and then as soon as I saw you had, I was immediately like, oh shit, it totally is. But this movie is so damn entertaining, I didn't even catch it. Escape Room. Yeah, Escape Room, because it's obviously playing from some of the other films that would be in this, the Saws, the uh, Would You Rathers. It feels cube. It's got this kind of, I mean, and this was a trend, which I love. I will do an entire episode on these at some point. The ones where you stick a group of people in a room and then they have to figure out why they are there and how to get back out. And these all happened right after Cube. And so um, we see this kind of grouping of them in the mid-2000s, but this one... Well, Cube's very existential, so you Mm -hmm. never really understand. It leaves you in that place where your brain will... You'll never get the full picture of what's happening to people. I think sometimes that maybe is the smarter way to create something and maybe pushes it more towards sci-fi because it's more cerebral, whereas this is definitely more about the fun, the experience, but then by the end it goes full... It goes full satire and really... It doesn't... full one percent right it i mean and this is a spoiler yeah that they um that this whole kind of escape room has been orchestrated by very wealthy people who are placing bets on who will figure out how to get out yeah and that in no way spoils the movie somehow because you're still like watching it incredibly entertaining yeah you're still watching it to figure who's going to survive how they're going to get out and how the rooms work because the rooms are so damn fun and they're doing this again it's a lot of these films are about in terms of these kind of gamified 
uh, movies, it's for ten thousand dollars. It, it's because it's you're, there's an economic need. And one of one of the interesting things that kind of breaks the mold on this one, and I haven't seen this since we saw it, but I remember one of the characters was kind of like a yuppie, so he was mm-hmm. actually wealthy, and that was like, oh, that's interesting. So they're not just praying. He was doing it to push himself. I remember yeah. he'd been like given it by a client and was doing it to push himself. Yeah. He was some type like an agenty type. So it's not always as literal as uh, you know the one percent feeding on the ninety nine and and vice versa. Sometimes there's twists to this, and sometimes they're you know slightly complicated. And again, uh, you know, it's something I think about a lot as another subgenre that cracks me up when I was thinking about this this topic. And uh, is the kind of nineties yuppie thrillers, right? That was a whole another. We'll do sub-genre. that one next season. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, that's an amazing because those movies, if you actually watch, they and they are relevant to this a little bit without going deep into it. But like, obviously, we're talking about the fatal American Psycho, single white female. Yeah. Uh, oh, you, you're Pacific going back Hulk. even. I'm talking further. the nine, like 90s. early '90s. Okay. And the reason I say those is because if you actually think about them, they are uh, they're the opposite of what we're talking about. They're basically the yuppies' lives are being interrupted by somebody they let in who they think is on their level, another yuppie who turns out to be oh, you're a cipher trying to oh, take my yuppie. Deadcom. Deadcom. Yeah. Pacific Heights though definitely has that single white female definitely has it. Uh, a disclosure, the temp. The, you know, these movies are like, oh, if, if, if we let you into our 1%, what, suddenly you're going to spoil it. So to me, it, it tells you a lot about the ideals of that post-Reagan time where everyone mm-hmm. wants to hold on to the wealth and kind of stay in their class. But I love that as a subgenre. I actually really enjoy those movies. And, and the thriller aspect's always kind of funny because they're always un- everyone's unhinged, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not the 1% in that, you're the unhinged. So. <laughs> then you're obviously the insane killer that's going to come yeah, back at the end. which is fun. Well, now we're doing that next season. I, I'm down for uh, <laughs> 90s yuppie thrillers. <laughs> I, I'm so thrillers. Into, into that one. Um, I did mention this in one movie, and I wouldn't go deep into this, and I won't spoil this one because it is too new, but the, the film Bong Joon-ho's uh, Parasite. Which I have not seen yet, but yeah, all of my I'll, students have, so I've heard copious amounts about it. But it, tell it, me just kind of a general precursor of how the, the 1% classism works into it. It's you know Sometimes also when it's a foreign film, what's so impressive about this is just how well this film travels. I think it, you know, you're watching it in America, you feel, oh, it's about now. It feels very now. But it's probably really also about the economic situation in South Korea. But what you see is basically a family who are really at the bottom and they basically it's the opposite without it being a home invasion film it is a slow home invasion so they never are attacking uh the one percent what they do is they slowly get jobs in the family and replace other people and they pretend that they're not related and they keep recommending the other family member until they're all working for this rich family so it's the slow home invasion which is you know satirical and very benoilian in terms of humor and once they're there, uh, things start getting darker and darker because they like their lot in life now and they get used to it. But it's really, uh, it's like, it's almost like a complete reversal on some of these other ideas of, you know, the kind of home invasion. In one of the titles we talk about later, maybe we'll uh, refer back to it. But it's a, it's a really smart movie and it's all about class divide. So, I mean, I highly recommend people do see it, even though it's not what we'd ever call strict horror film. Uh, it just kind of strays into some of these ideas I think are relevant. And this one's in theaters now. It's in theaters right now, yeah. Excellent. Okay. So then we were also going to talk about some of the kind of 1% horrors that are more kind of franchisey because sometimes these definitely, these social inequality horrors kind of build their way in. And at the same time, what we were talking about before, the idea of it being cyclical, I've talked about on this show before, which we've seen with gore and violence, how after times of any type of national trauma, whether it be Vietnam or post 9-11, that we see this like heavy increase in socially uh, social commentary within horror, but also gore. And so we see um, both Hostel and The Land of the Deads come out pretty close to 9-11. It was mm. like right around there. Um, and the hostels being, you know, it's it's all about 
the rich torturing the poor yeah. just for the fuck of it. Taking taking advantage and, and seeing how far you push it. But obviously like and you and you did touch on this on on your torture episodes, it's also like it was also referring to some of the images that were being captured of the torture facilities. Yeah. So a lot of those things were combining. But again, it's just people. Uh, that's a franchise built on like the exploitation of people for your pleasure or mm-hmm. for for whatever your mind. I think this idea that comes through on quite a few of these titles is what is the craziest thing your mind can come up with? Oh, you can have that and you can take it and you deserve it because you've worked for it. You've earned your money, and it's this. I, I, it's a very inhuman, sadly. Uh, and and it's all about the inequalities. I mean, we've been listening news lately about a say a figure like a Jeffrey Epstein. There's a lot of figures. I feel like he is a, a model. If if what people claim about him is true, right? He's kind of a figurehead for a lot of these kind of archetypes we see. Exactly. You know, yeah. People with vast wealth and power networks who are then able to hide it and really achieve whatever your desire is. and keep it going because yeah. nothing is going to stop them because of the money and because of the power, the influence, and the and the protection from uh, from you know you there's a and I think what I'm getting at is, in some ways, is that um, the disenfranchised, and that can actually be the filmmakers making these films, who who might feel powerless politically and upset and angry, and they can shake their fist at their TV mm-hmm. throughout the last couple decades. When they make a movie, they can actually make that message, and they can reach people, and it can, it, it's kind of an insidious way to get a message through. It always has been through Soviet propaganda. It's a way to get a message across, and I think it's really effective, uh, and even more effective when you're building a franchise because now you've got four or five films that are slowly repeating the same things to people. The weird thing is, like, say, the Purge franchise, which obviously is, like, you know, uh, the perfect example of what we're talking about in a lot of ways where it's, you know, it's all about capitalist inequality because even though the concept is, oh, everyone's going to have this equal moment, you can all co- go out and do whatever you want on this day. Mm-hmm. Well, who does that favor? It favors the people who can protect themselves, the yeah. people who can afford a security system or big-ass guns to go around hunting people. It does not favor those people who are out on the street. And or, don't have a way to protect themselves. Right, or vulnerable. Yeah. So, uh, But this is the weird thing, and you might totally dif- disagree, because I like the Purge franchise, but there's a part of me, and even with a we know the liberal quality of the people who make it, and the and and there's something when I watch them all back to back that I start to feel almost like it. It's almost overwhelmingly feels a bit like a propaganda, and almost feels conservative. They in a get way. more intense as it goes along. Mm-hmm. They get more loud with it as it goes yeah. along. I definitely think. But then again, as they were being made, our politics got more mm-hmm. extreme. Yeah. And I talked on the last episode when I was talking about kind of um, the history of gore. That, you know, we have to always, when we look at films, we have to look at the environment that they're being made in. Because I'd heard um, many times people questioning about, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it says, based on a true story up at the top. And everybody's like, really, no one believes that. And, I, you know, this was just a couple of years post-Manson. At that point, you know, kind of anything was possible. If that had happened and this guy went crazy and convinced all these people to kill all these people... You know, the idea of Texas Chainsaw Massacre was not that far-fetched. And so when you're kind of looking at these Purge films, you have to realize that even though that they seem to be getting more extreme, our politics, like when that first one was made, we were barely kind of reaching the the split that we see in our country now, which has just grown and gotten more kind of violent as we've gone along. And they got glossier. They yeah, get, bigger they get, budgets. They get bigger and glossier, which reminds me of the news media, like it, both Fox and CNN, both mm-hmm. sides of it, where there's oh, it's endlessly something spinning or mm-hmm. saying emergency and warning, and it's all. And I when I watch those movies, they feel that way to me. They they almost 
are a little stressful mm-hmm. <laughs> because you and 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 in fairness that that works for the characters trapped inside them because anything can happen to you in those uh, i think i think it's i think that's a of all the ideas of the last i think 15 20 years political when it comes to political movies i think the purge has the best concept and the best ideas i i've yet to find one that totally spoke to me and i feel like but the idea can go in so many different directions you know i really enjoyed them um I, three was quite possibly one of my mm. favorites with the president just because it happened right it was so well timed i saw it the night of the election wow yeah and so i hadn't seen it and watched it and i regret it i just remember seeing the um and i remember hearing about it at blumhouse before but it was the idea that they ran the ads for the movie, the trailers for the movie during the debate. Hmm. Like they knew exactly what they were doing and even using the red hat and having it say, you know, the first purge and things like that. Like they knew exactly what they were doing. And so what I'm saying is it's like, it's almost the way that um, the Friday 13th movies are made by liberal people who are not at all the, the subtext of those movies having been read now as, oh, it's these conservative values that if you, you know, if you do drugs and you have sex, you get killed. I question that. But yeah, I right, have heard it, that slashers are all innately right wing by right, nature. Right, but we know, because we know people have made these, we know that's not the intention. We know mm-hmm. that was almost a strange accidental or some weird subtext that was coming through in the thing. And it's funny. So my readings of the Purge films is like, I know that what their intentions are, but there's something to me when I watch them that almost has the opposite effect. And it could just because it reminds me of the news, you know? It'd be as simple as that. Um, so in, in terms of the Romero films, which I think are the most, I mean, and when I talk about the, not the entire series, but the first, say, three for sure, and then, and then the fourth is really interesting, uh, the Dead films, they're, um, each one seems to have a different um, interest, and, it, and they're so nuanced, and, and that I think they, that's one of the reasons they last so well, is he... Uh, each time he's, it's, it's more than just subtext in his films. He is being overt at times, especially yeah. by the time you get to Land of the Dead. I mean, that one's pretty obvious. Right. But Romero but, kind of did that across the board where I don't want to say like, you know, he picked a different topic every time, yeah. but in a way he did when I look at his films across the board, you know, you can be like, oh, this is his feminist film. Oh, this is his anti-religion film. This is his racist, yeah. you know, his racism And film. he wasn't interested. So, I mean, even, you know, obviously if you watch Heart, the great documentary Heart Noir, you know, lo- long has it been said that his casting uh, of a black lead was accidental or the, to the best actor in the room? It's like, and I also believe he, Dwayne Jones is the best actor in the room. By far. But I, but I can't accept that that's fact because uh, he just his work's always inherently political and he seems to be such a progressive person who's always pushing an envelope. I, I would find that very hard to believe that that wasn't part of what he was intending with that film. And even if you look at his follow-up, which was Season of the Witch, I mean, that yeah. is just so heavy-handed feminist. Yeah. I mean, it literally yeah. opens with a woman in a cage being circled by her husband. I mean, like, it's so heavy-handed. Yeah, no, so, he's making those comments. But yeah. but the, I feel like, uh, you know, Dawn's obviously so fun. He's making mm-hmm. very clear statements about our consumerist culture, right? And that's interesting, and I, and it's definitely probably my favorite of the movies. But but Land seems to be the one where he mo- he's literally gone from subtext to overt text. Like, this is really, he's really saying Dennis Hopper's character is President Bush. And he's put know? him, yeah, he's, he's very Bush-ish, and he's put him in this tower. Yeah, what they call um, I, I had to write down what they called the town because it's Fiddler's Green. Which oh, is, nice. it's, it's this luxury uh, area that, which is fenced off from all the rest of the people who are suffering in an almost um, Night Riders-esque uh, It's like of, apocalyptic yeah. landscape Yeah. Right. And, and, and But it's just, he, I, there's a scene that, you know, never forget Dennis Hopper half-picking his nose and it just felt like he really was making fun of the, the current administration while he's making this movie. Mm-hmm. And that can work. Sometimes it can be too overt, you know. Uh, it's 
it's not my favorite of the four films, but it but it is smart and mm-hmm. it does give it something that kind of lasts and lingers. And even how the zombies in that almost do become the society, the yeah. idea that they're being tortured just as much as everyone else who was in this kind of escape from the Bronx-ish environment that they are now coexisting in. Right, and that they're mind zombies are these mindless things until some until one of them uh, basically uh, wakes up and, mm-hmm. and and it just takes one to start leading and changing things. And, and you do see that in quite a lot of these films that uh, are about the revolt or that end up being the horror of the one percent, but then you know it flips it and the one percent end up being punished in some way. Uh, and I think I think that's kind of what makes that film most unique. Is I can't remember the character's name, but the the guy who's like basically communicating to the rest of them and they end up yeah. kind of storming the storming Fiddler's Green, which is great. I but, remember that getting so much flack at the time, mm-hmm. like critically. But now that I look back on it, I it's it's a smart thing he was doing. I, so. I just love that Romero does not care. Like, no, <laughs> like he you know he's going to make the movies he was making. He didn't he wants them to connect, but he's not going to curtail because he because for the most part he was making them independently. Even Diary, which I found to be rather dry. I mean, it does have such strong messaging yeah. about our existence online, and that was years ago. Right, and he was jumping right into digital when that was mm-hmm. a brand new text. I, I can't even really remember the story of that one, but I remember it looked like a young man's film. It didn't feel like yep. a 70-year-old was directing that, mm-hmm. uh, which is always impressive. I will mention two more before we dig into kind of our core that mm-hmm. we're going to talk about tonight. Um, the Washingtonians, which I don't think you've seen, right? No, I didn't. I mean, I remember it's part of the Masters of Horror, right? Yeah, Masters of Horror, and it's not even one of the best ones, but it's um, definitely interesting in that it is straight Was that Peter Medak? Peter Medak okay, did it, or Medak. Yeah, um, yeah, the changeling director. Yeah, he did that, and um, it's it's based on a short story, but it is about this guy who uncovers this kind of hidden... Um, ancient kind of architectural stuff about George Washington where he realizes that the way that they survived the winter at Valley Forge was that they literally ate the soldiers. Mm. And um, that because of that, these like rich generals that our country was founded on were founded on the idea of consuming those underneath them. So mm. it's literally like the rich eating well, the Well, and then, and then Homecoming by Joe Dante is also from that same series was also yeah. one of the most fun because, and again, it is exploitation because, uh, you know, your military is the most in, the, in some ways you could say the most vulnerable part of a society if you if you force them to be in action you're risking them and especially if it's for something not worth mm-hmm. doing so the idea that these zombies who were forced to fight in a war they didn't believe would come back to vote out a leader at the time that's a great it's like very overt and maybe a little too it much it was but like it's funny death to, dream as a sitcom exactly and i love yeah. it death dream is one of my favorite movies death dream is the you know the dark actual horror version but it's still political mm-hmm. you know it's still heavily but it's not really as, as much about this particular part we're talking about as much and this one is recent that and i didn't even think about it until i started looking at stuff that had come out within the past couple of years but um the channel zero series butcher's block mm-hmm. which was not not my favorite of the bunch, which is why I I'd completely forgotten about that one. Out of all of them, it was one that I, I can't say I enjoyed. But again, it's literally about kind of the upper group um, feeding the family on of this town who are like kind of the wealthy uh, industry family. Yeah, they meat. own the meat industry, peaches, meat, and because of it, they kind of control the whole town. But then you find out that they're actually feeding on the the har- the people in this horrible slum that and they the run. kids were disappearing from mm-hmm. the thing. It kind of be, it, it turned like all these stories it became an urban legend. Yeah, I, I'm with you. That wasn't my favorite of the, of the series, but it also had moments that were, I mean, like a lot of that super surreal moments that are really memorable. But yeah, I mean, like the, a lot of them are literal, like the rich are feeding off 
the poor, and that's a subtext that's been around. You know, go go to Sweeney Todd, even you know. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah. Time periods, but uh, I don't think Sweeney Todd's his was more um, poor taking revenge on the rich. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and that's often the case. Often these are flipped dyna- mm-hmm. dynamics. Like we'll bring up one dynamic, but the cleverness. So the ones when we're talking about picking just a few to besides these ones that were kind of setting the scene, uh, I thought what's interesting about and where I tried to pick very different titles is they really cross subgenres. This this they isn't do. something you could call a subgenre. It's a thematic link, but like they can be totally wildly different types of movies. And I find that to be, it's interesting how each one gets its message across. And I'd always kind of viewed that these were cyclical where we were going to see like little groupings. Like there was a whole bunch post-Vietnam and then we'd see a whole bunch in the eighties during Reaganomics and a whole bunch now. But when we um, kind of went through our list of the ones that we were like, these are kind of the best of the bunch of 1% horrors, these are from all over the place. Yeah, so and, and we could have gone even kind deeper. Of, yeah. You could pick 20 and pick from all different decades, but these were ones also that movies, I, I think for me it's always important to pick something you also like. Mm-hmm. Like these are also good movies that hold up on their own. Took If you strip them of that, uh, the, the messages, they're still entertaining and, and fascinating. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so in terms of like, I just thought it'd be interesting to go through what what is the satire uh, of each and how are they kind of constructing but you know the first one I, th- I figured we'd start with because it's so easy to read is They Live yes you know Carpenter 88 and uh, I always loved this film as a kid and I, I think that's what's kind of cool about this movie it's pretty easy to see the the obvious part of the message mm-hmm. even from a young age right it's it's like so transparent because it's literally saying you know your cons- capitalist country yeah, yeah is controlling you um, but watching it a couple years ago uh, it was um at Jump Cut, there was a screening. I uh, was there. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I was floored. The first few minutes I started watching this movie again, I was like, oh my God, this is John Carpenter making a near-realist movie. And you and like I... Like Rossellini kind yeah. of thing. You know? We had a conversation about that. I remember where um, we talked about how it was like the bicycle thief. Yeah, but, I mean, it feels like But like a horror film right, because, because it is this bleak environment where no one has anything. There's no apparent way out of it. And, and you're just kind of left to live in that. And, and it's just like the first 20-something minutes is just Roddy Piper as a really working-class person, and they just are these hard-working people, and everything's kind of dusty in L.A., and they don't have much. And They're in you, these homeless encampments. Yeah, and you're powerless to speak up against your boss because if you get your pay cut, you need that for the dollar. So I was like really struck by how much time... I mean, this this was clear to me what Carpenter was trying to do this time. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was young, it was an entertainment thing. This time I was like, no, no, he's actually referencing those types of movies. He's saying Roddy Piper is this everyman, which could come down to why I cast him because you get a wrestler at its most popular. Instead of getting him because he's a big and muscly guy, I think he's getting him because anyone could identify because they're all watching wrestling at the time. Well, like you he's still an, get like a 20-minute fight scene. You do, but, but, yeah. but, but so, so one angle. So there's so many obvious uh, satirical elements. It doesn't take uh, much to dig under this but it, 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 a fun one, and obviously Reagan is a big part of this. Uh, but like the part I was thinking about that makes it interesting is just okay, just forget that they're aliens and just replace them with you know yuppies or people at the very top. What it, what it struck me as in this country, working for the American dream, you can you can do that, and you, even in doing the jobs that Roddy Piper is doing, you can be a manual laborer. You can do that so long as you don't see clearly. Mm-hmm. And if you suddenly saw clearly to what other people really had and the gap between that, basically, that it's actually impossible to achieve that from where your lot is. And that's what these glasses, I think, are saying is, oh, no, we, we control you uh, and you're working for us and we're sitting up here. That clarity, it, it's hard because it's going to change you forever. And a lot of people don't want to be changed forever. It's that hard to do it. And he 
accidentally stumbles into it, but to convince anyone else to come with him and to look at the truth is almost impossible, including yeah. a 12-minute fight scene just to put some Just glasses. to get the glasses on. Right, which is to say the guy is so in denial. He, wa- he wants to just keep doing his, his job because that's the American dream. And Roddy's character is saying, actually, the American dream is bullshit. And it's bullshit because only this 1% of people can actually get there. Mm-hmm. And we're stuck here. And that's what the glasses are exposing. And so it's, you know, it's, even though it's overt in the way it's showing uh, about a, a, our culture, I think there's more to it. Uh, that can be kind of pushed in that way. And I loved that because it is so of its time in the 80s. Because, I mean, even if we look back at the 50s or some of the Twilight and Zone and Outer Limits episodes, the idea of having glasses that reveal aliens mm-hmm. or even other devices that will reveal who is an alien in the room, of having them among us and one person being allowed to see, that's not a new concept. The idea of seeing them as the controlling force of the populace and there's nothing that you can do to fight against it and everything is futile, that is all 80s. That's, mm-hmm. that's totally like, you know, the, the rich get rich and the poor don't. Oh, so. and, and there's a great, I mean, towards the end, I can't remember the actor's name, but the guy who's the bum during the movie and he's kind of the poorest of all of them. By the end, they kind of see him again. He's now joined the force. He's not one of the aliens, but he's now allowed to enjoy all the things they have. He's on the team. So there's also, uh, you know, usually with a lot of these stories, you have to be born into it, like some of the films we're going to talk about. In this case, they're also willing to to get the right people in, and if you can make that choice to exploit your soul mm-hmm. and join the team, and I think that works really well. Allow uh, one to elevate to keep the dream alive. Right, exactly. Yeah. To try to yeah, to try to placate for everyone. So next up, um, this one. I- I heard people arguing it's not a horror film, but I'm going to say it's horror adjacent, and I fucking love it, and anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm genre fluid. Yeah. Um, So Cheap Thrills. Yeah, Evan Katz's film is is still one of my favorite films of the decade, to be honest. It's one of the ones that most surprised me. Mm -hmm. Of all the movies I watched, it's like a small indie, uh, you know, has Pat Healy in it, Ethan Embry, two genre vets who have been in a lot of stuff. It was was Evan Katz's first film, but Travis Stevens, who had done, you know, a lot of interesting Yeah, like veteran producer. It just, this one killed, it's so funny it's so it's so, it's so self-contained and it's black it's so humor. smart in that so the setup is um that there are two guys both of whom are down on their luck um they both are in need of cash one has a brand new baby and his wife is sweating because they don't have enough money and i think um, he gets fired in the opening scene i think this is kind of like recession yeah. horror like you know the recession's hitting and you just lost your job but a baby's on the way and, and he's married to amanda fuller in it um yeah and it's it's just this kind of wonderful setup and they're at a bar kind of bitching about their lot and they happen upon this incredibly wealthy weird couple that offers to pay them to do stupid shit and it starts out increasingly fucked up yeah it starts out just like really really lame like i bet you 20 bucks you can't do you know balance this on your head and i think it slapped the ass of the waitress or something yeah so already it's crossing acceptable lines like it's like even though that in a bar that might seem like nothing but now before when maybe when this was made but now uh there's a youtube video of somebody slapping a, a barmaid on the ass and then barmaid like dropping the guy like punching him out and knocking him down. oh hell yeah so i feel like yeah i feel like there's been a reversal in the 
culture. But even that little, it's a little thing then, and it's each one builds to sicker and stranger. To the point where they end up at their house literally like doing stuff to each other, like stab this guy. Like it gets really intense. For each, for a very specific amount of money. Mm-hmm. So it's it's basically, hey, I have 50 bucks for you to do that. So it's a joke. And then it's like, why are we doing this? Well, it's my wife's, his wife is like 30 years younger than him. It's Sarah Paxton. You know, she's 20 and he's like 50. So already you see what money buys. That's what it's already saying. He's got the money. Uh, it's her birthday. He wants to entertain her. So he finds two guys who, and basically you get the, the you get the feeling of beyond the game that you're watching, which gets increasingly sick. It's really about uh, how far can I destroy their relationship yes. with for money. So it, it, even though they don't see it that way until you get to the end of these series of challenges, they see it as ways to make quick money and maybe be in cahoots together to pull this off. Uh, what becomes very clear as this goes. And I'm going to try not to actually spoil the ending of this one because it is such a powerful ending, but they push they push these characters to a place where actually, yes, you can take the money. Yes, you can do the bidding of these wealthy people. But if you go so far as to what happens in this movie, you will never be you again. Yep. You are done. And that, that person that you can have all the money, you can walk out with the bag of money, but what you've done to do that, that's the literal definition of blood money. And now you're tainted, it's tainted. And you know, you, you might not be able to go back to that life. And this movie does so brilliantly um, demonstrates the idea that money is meaningless to these two people, like literally oh, yeah. meaningless, like they're just throwing it. Whereas to the other people, it's literally their lives. Like mm-hmm. them, you know, it's literally them trying to figure out like, how am I going to get food tomorrow for my kid? Yeah. Um, so it, it's sharply different, but then seeing them kind of intersect and how they work together, it's it's a fascinating movie. Well, and, yeah, and it's all American. I mean, a lot of these are American dream as American nightmare mm-hmm. scenarios. It's like, oh, they're, they're playing this for the dream because the dream is money. But once you start realizing what, how, how close that line is to that, what is a nightmare and I think these characters I, I, the one note I, I, I wrote down because you know there's there might be some dog you know be careful if you're a dog lover that's there's a moment in oh, this yeah, that's hard the for dog. people there's some great finger finger trauma uh, but uh, it's kind of like um, a really hashtag finger trauma finger I didn't trauma. <laughs> do that one last week when I was talking about gore fingers did not come up I oh, talked about fingernails not fingers um, indeed I, I was thinking this is like a really sick version of indecent proposal like somebody's oh thinking God, about indecent, yeah. which is again a yuppie but it is, thriller. yeah. Again, that's a yuppie <laughs> feeding on, yeah. yeah. So, um, but that's feeding 90s. on it for, I know that's the '90s thrillers. And yet somehow that one pulls it off. That it's like somehow romantic, and that he's not some grotesque pig. Like you watch that now, and you go, "Wow, how did they?" The only way they pulled it off is by casting Robert Redford. Had and that it's been, money. Imagine, okay, I want you to imagine for a second, indecent proposal, but instead of Redford, it's Joe Spinell. How would you feel, <laughs> how would you feel about that movie seeing Joe Spinell sweaty and you're gonna have money to add a few more million before oh yeah now I just want to see Joe Spinell and Demi Moore at it but anyway um, it's just too gross I kind of love this that movie it. like writes itself <laughs> no, got into it. but um, no Cheap Thrills is is wildly entertaining and this is the kind of thing you can get away with be, by being like you can be playful super entertaining mm-hmm. but it's still always on point it's always saying something and I think that's why it feels I think this is a movie that every decade probably somebody could watch it and think they're talking about that period. Yeah. Um, but I think especially this one relates to the recession and kind of this right around the Tea Party time. So we were seeing these kind of extreme divisions coming that from that. And I do have to also say this movie um, covers a topic that I know I will end up discussing, which is um, right around the same point of the recession, 
like budgets across the board with movies really kind of plummeted, especially mm. in the horror genre. And it suddenly became this kind of um, golden goose of who could make a compelling story in one house, one mm, location for actors. And I called them house horrors at the time. Now I would definitely try to come up with a different term, but it was always four actors, one location. And then the trick was to make you not feel like you were in the same location. Mm. Um, and this one did it brilliantly well yeah this one's also when you think about it it's, it's also like a saw movie but that the traps are just things that the people are looking around the house going hey yeah do that yeah you stick know, this so in the microwave yeah, yeah and then figure it out and it, and it seems so stupid i think one of the charms of the movie is it seems so stupid every time they say something and then it just leads to something that reveals something psychological and mm-hmm. suddenly you're deeper and deeper into these characters who they really are and you get great character reversals by the end this i can't recommend this one enough for anyone listening who hasn't seen it it's a great film so this next one, um, Elric and I did a screening of um, while we were in Phoenix last year, and this is Society. Yeah. And we kind of knew what we were getting into when we picked this film, um, because they told us, they were basically like, y'all can screen anything that you want, have fun. And Elric and I went back with um, a number of like our favorite films of what we thought would make for a really fun screening. Why did we finally decide on Society? I don't know. I've been like, yeah, you, you've heard me say this before, but I've been tr- trying to champion this film like way, when, back when it was really mm-hmm. hard to get. And... And it was because where I grew up, it was an it was an easy to find release in New Zealand. I can't something. believe this got like widespread release. Yeah, it was kind of like crazy. It was always right next to Reanimator, as, and so I just thought it was like a mainstream film. But then I moved here, and it was always unavailable. It had been out of print for it a long time. Definitely did not get that type of reception. Like I remember seeing it on VHS, but it was like one of those like hidden gems that you happen to be, you know, after I'd rented every single one of the Friday the Thirteenth and the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Okay, well, what's this? And um, so it was definitely not one that was like a massive release. It also felt a little too, um, like looking back at it, I could see watching it in the 80s and kind of going, oh, this is on the nose. Right. Like, right. and it does, it's on the nose. But that said, it's, it's I mean, a very, the drama, the drama isn't very great. greasy nose. Yeah. Billy Warlock, the drama of the film and the structure is, you know, very 80s, but it's also kind of clunky. And, but then it gets to what, when the effects are revealed and what the, uh, what what the film's really about, the meat mm-hmm. of this film and the subtext, which stops being subtext and becomes this like avalanche of grotesque body parts and uh, the rich literally uh, feeding and draining, uh, draining people who aren't of their uh, lot in society. Yeah. It becomes uh, unforgettable and one of the most nightmarishly funny and strange things ever put on film. Um, and to get there, you just have to, you know, suffer through some drama. But uh, there's so much in this one, like even just the myth of what you're watching. Because the funny thing is Billy Warlock character, he's like growing up in this family, but you're like, at a certain point you realize, but he's not really accepted by Yeah, them. so the whole concept is it's set in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And um, this is like 1980s Beverly Hills yeah. where it's all about charity events and mom in pretty dresses and gardeners and things like that. And um, Billy Warlock is a teen in this very, very, you know, upper middle class wealthy family. And he does not feel like the rest, whereas his sister's getting ready for cotillions and his family is all about these different um, reach events. He very much doesn't feel bougie. He feels like he's more kind of um, run of the mill and he doesn't want to be part of this kind of bougie society. And he even begins to fall foreign to the point where he becomes convinced that his family is aliens. Yeah, his anxiety um, of dreams about it and he's telling his secretary. But what's cool, instead of making, like the, the normal setup for this with that exact thing that you were uh, kind of setting up, it would be that he is kind of some nerdy loser. But instead, he's actually popular. Yeah. He's the best jock. So he actually has... He has all, a really hot girlfriend. Like he's got everything right, so going for him. Right, so he has all him. the attributes except 
that it's not in his blood. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. It's Again, it's this commentary, well, it doesn't matter how, how great you are, uh, you're just not from our lineage. Which is basically a line in the movie. Right, right yeah. which to me, you know, the first time you watch it, you don't necessarily get that straight away, but you realize, you know, he's adopted. I, I never really understood the why, like except to groom him for... To groom him, yeah. But they, and they definitely make it clear they are not aliens. No, I no. Think they, that's I think there's a, a thing where they call them blue blood at some point. They, but again, you, again, when you're watching it from this perspective, you want to kind of forget that part and just go, no, it's, it's the upper class elite society literally grooming people to feed off uh, whoever it will be that time. Kind of almost, the, instead of just being the poor, they want it to actually be somebody who's a little higher up, but still not, not of their not of, of their breed. And, and it's grotesque. And again, it's deeply incestual. You know, you have the, the parents and the daughter. They're all, you know, touching and sleeping together. Bodies are melting together. The whole together. community is because it's all about the judge. And, yeah, the yeah. judge. It's a, it, so it has its own rules. It, it, it Obviously, it's if you not seen this but heard of it you know it ends with this mass shunting of bodies coming, I didn't know what a climbing. shunting was till I watched it I know yeah. um, I'd spent many years studying shunting I was like oh it's just another shunting film <laughs> it's just another shunting film yeah. um, um, and it definitely does go very crazy and nothing we can say about it is ever going to prepare no, you for what you see in it but you yeah. know the effects are by screaming Mad George and it's like true surrealism a graphic where you where body parts are being uh, merged but one one note I wrote to myself thinking about that I was like it's uh, the Billy Warlock, like by the end, he literally has to, uh, he has to literally put his arm up inside somebody and turn Pull them, inside, them inside, out inside out to reveal the truth about the dream or the one, but you know what I mean? Like, it feels like that's how, how far he had to go. Mm-hmm. So where Roddy, Mc, Roddy, uh, Roddy Piper has to put on the glasses or force somebody, this guy actually has to turn the thing inside out itself for it to be revealed how grotesque the insides and what... The, and that's what it takes have. to kill them as right, well. Right, it takes like, to kill them. So it's like a pretty, you know, uh, let's not say Yuzna has a subtle bone in his body, never has. No, no, looking at his work as a whole, he's just not, he's not in it for he's the not subtle, but, but it's like, it's fun and it's wild. And mm-hmm. I think, one thing I've heard him say before was that yeah I was never very good with actors but I really like surrealism and you get that and this does it feels totally like if there is an 80s film about the financial um, bifurcation that was going on this is it um, this is definitely kind of you know there's Wall Street and then there's society. Oh yeah, and 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 you know he he it's the kind of film where I could see it ripe for a compl- if you were going to remake it or or make a sequel in the current thing you'd want to come up with a whole new way to do it. But just the concept is so good mm-hmm. for revealing that it's a part of a club that doesn't want you. Uh, they can feed off you, but they don't want you. I didn't realize until we watched it last time that one you're kind of seeing the ending in the opening, which is mm, crazy. That's right, yeah. Um, but the song that they sing at the beginning mm-hmm. when you listen to the lyrics, it's so beautiful yeah, let's yeah. all hail society yeah. and um the it's like lyrics, a cheer almost yeah it's yeah. like it's very much like a um kind of an insular cheer mm-hmm. celebrating the 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 bougie yeah so yeah now, this is this is a very special movie and and if you haven't seen it you you have to watch it for a topic like this so now we're going to um, go international for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this totally fits into the topic of the night, and that is martyrs. Yeah, and I mean, it's really radically different than the others. And, and I, I think it's a little less, you know, by the end it's overt, but it's a little less clear with some of this. But I, I think it makes sense because basically this part of the French extremity, uh, Pasquale Laguerre, I think is his name. Uh, well done. The, 
What's that? Well done. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I Pascal butchered that. Legui- Leguia. Yeah. Uh, from 2008. Uh, this is a movie that, you know, uh, you might not enjoy. And I will say, when I first saw it, I really, I remember it had a real reputation of being a dangerous thing. Like, yeah, I was a little scared it was, to watch it. It was so transgressive. Yeah. And I remember everybody being like, oh my God, have you seen Martyrs? Like, it was a yeah. dare. Which is rare. Um, which happened that. around, like, Serbian film. I mm-hmm. remember it happening as well. But then, see, that's a lot goofier, right? Right? Like, yeah, Serbian humor. film, I could not take as seriously. But Martyrs, I mean, was definitely submerged into. And I've always heard people say, well, I like the first half or the second half because it is one of those movies that reinvents itself midway the, through. The first time. I felt that way. Second time watching it, maybe a couple years ago, um, I found it incredibly effective. Well, I think there's something so shocking about the first viewing that you're, and, and the change in tones are shocking. But watching it when you know what's going to happen, it's actually a really smart and really, I mean, it's still a disturbing movie. There's no way to watch that movie without being affected, and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, because some horror films do, it does have to borrow under your skin. It can't just all be a, a funny, you know, uh, idea. But uh, this one is basically, a, you know, opens with an orphan who has been abu- an abducted orphan who's being abused. Uh, by a mysterious thing, you don't know what it is. She escapes. Escapes. Uh, grow, go, ends up in a foster home meeting and meets a good friend, but still believes she's being abused by some kind of shadowy thing in her life, and eventually grows up and break, breaks into a suburban house of a one percent type family, like a perfect French family. And it's really subversive of the way you show it because they let us get to know the family, get to kind of like them, watch their lunch, their, you know, breakfast There's conversation. Kids. There's kids. It's friendly. It. it just seems to, and then she breaks in and dispatches them in really violent ways. So you're suddenly very torn because you don't really understand how that family could be connected. Or what's going on. But then when the movie proceeds, and I won't blow the ending on this one just yeah. because I, I'm going to guess not a lot of people have seen this one. Um, but where you, when you find out where it's going, that is when um, kind of the the wealthy trying to gain knowledge on the backs of the poor. Well, we'll we, because we have to talk about it a little bit, we'll say spoiler right now. Just go forward two minutes. Yeah, uh, be only because I think basically as as we reveal the layers to this this domestic house underneath this house is a very high tech holding facility. So you what it does so smart is you start to doubt. Oh, she did get it wrong. She yeah. killed these people. And then once her friend comes, uh, you reveal this space, and it's really like kind of mind-blowing and it basically opens up you meet this woman who's called the mademoiselle and you you realize that they are uh, abducting and and purposely torturing uh certain lower class and uh, always woman in a very joan of arc uh way mm-hmm. and basically they have this belief system and it's a bunch of rich people who have a belief system uh that they uh, you know have really no evidence to back it up but they keep doing it uh whereas some people are able to withstand certain amounts of torture and through this uh, martyrdom might achieve some higher consciousness to in, see to see to the other yeah. side and and bring back so again it's people uh, not willing to do the hard work themselves to yep. force somebody else to do and it really evokes imagery that you remember from like Nazi Germany uh, very effectively like it's really disturbing it's intense uh, and it's uh, you know dr- another thing that sparked for me were drug companies in this country and how the you know experimentation on animals you know with no regard for the animals but what's important is the result, the result. this is worth it right because it's gonna tell us something and that is the biggest thing that is pushed is that the the fact that they are humans is completely secondary to the result, to no, getting no. the answer. It's worth it for this group of the elite to get that answer. Uh, has a, I won't blow the very end because it has a, I love the way it kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of sticks it to them it's in a sense. It's this incredible postmodern ending. It it's, is, and, and it's a film with so many different tones, but this this is like, to me, one of the most subversive 
transgressive movies and uh, it's less overt about exactly the ideas it's playing with, um, but it does it in a way that's like unforgettable. It's a film I don't think you ever quite shake. What I found fascinating on a second viewing, and I I was even shocked I was able to go back and... This is one of those movies um, that, much like Gaspar Noé films, Mm -hmm. where I watched it once and was like, that was incredible. I will never watch this again, Um, just because it hits so hard. But I ended up watching Martyrs twice, and when I went back, kind of the prevailing theme of it then became kind of glimpsing into the other planes. Yeah. And I suddenly saw it in the framing and in how it was being shot, this idea of glimpsing through windows, of glimpsing through all this other stuff. And um, it really did kind of transcend itself then. Yeah, and I it's loved. also making kind of a cool comment that like, uh, you know, none of these kind of people probably would deserve to ever get to that other side because of what they're willing to do on this, on if heaven is earth, if right? If heaven is if, real. Or if heaven is earth. They're not going now. You, you've blown it. Whereas this person who is being tortured and who tried to be a good friend and who tried, might actually get to see that and get to experience that. So there's some like beauty, you know, he's a, he's a brutal, what I call a brutalist filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's almost the style. Obviously the French extremity had it a lot, but no one quite like this director and yeah. every one of his films has had this. Uh, I, this is the only one I particularly like, but there's elements of in all his films where there'll be moments that are really good and they're just hard. They hit hard. There was um, a theater movement, theater of cruelty, which mm-hmm. was all yeah. about kind of like uh, forcing the audience to endure stuff. And yeah. there's definitely movies that I think kind of fall into that, that same kind of theater of cruelty belief. And this is one of them. Yeah. Um, and I would put most of Gaspar Noé's films, a lot of the French extremist films in there as well. And again, um, this was all, you know, in the French extremity, was all those films have a lot in common. Uh, we could have picked probably a number of others. But yeah, we worked. talked about Frontiers right before we started recording yeah. where it's got kind of similar tones where it's this kind of controlling family um, and it even opens with kind of a, a political divisiveness. A lot of um, anti-immigrant sentiment. A lot of the yeah. stuff that was happening in France and is still happening in France because, you know, people in Paris are, you know felt like they're being taken. Same in Berlin where the immigrants and obviously has been a big part talking point in our current administration where, mm-hmm. y- you know, using classic scapegoatism. Totally. To fuel the horror and, the, and these filmmakers. I mean, it's weird when I think, I mean, that's what obviously make a great episode of your show at some point, just French extreme. Because, Which we will delve into. Yeah, because that's fourth super, season. You'll be back for yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, and be, but it's interesting why I would be interested in that because I don't have all the, don't know all the answers because I don't know all the politics yeah, of the I've time. I've always wondered why, why did we have that burst? Because yeah. there was this sudden burst where we probably had like, Seven films, and it wasn't even just in horror. There were ones that I didn't really consider horror, like Catherine Brule. Yeah, um, Catherine Brule, Gaspar Noé, and then uh, like Haneke, who even though he's Austrian, was his biggest was Cachet, which yeah. was a Paris-based film. So no, it was happening around the same time, and it was so you wonder. Okay, so obviously something's happening in the funding of this because Cachet falls into it as well. Like we oh, could yeah. have easily Cachet's, thrown that into one percent horror because it is still movies, kind yes. of the the wealthy upper. Yeah, middle with, class. With a dark like, secret about exploiting a worker and somebody. Yep. And no, it's it absolutely is. And I, even I, funny games to a degree. Right. Where, oh, yeah, yeah, funny, funny games, games yeah. to a, yeah. Yeah, and that's almost like the board, uh, the rich, torturing the rich, yeah. uh, just out of boredom. We are just scratching the surface here. Right, so. no, and I mean, that's what's interesting about it. There are so many movies that, well, it just tells you the inherent... Um, that instead of just screaming into the wind, you can make a movie. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can you can put this rage and anger and into ideas, and you can actually uh, make something that both entertains and illuminates someone. It's pretty. That's pretty great. And I do have to say that while Blumhouse and this is pre Get Out and Us, when I was kind of working there um, as editor in chief, I do remember hearing them say a bunch. 
what pisses you off? That's what you should yeah. go make a movie about. Yeah. And that was kind of one of the um, unofficial company mottos that I remember hearing a lot while I was there. And then you see it come out and get out in the purge hmm. and us in movies like that. So, yeah. Um, so then we are moving into, which one did you want to oh, do next? Oh, well, I decided because at the last minute I was like, well, Martyrs has a secret uh, basement dwelling where it's torturing people. Well, these both have a secret uh, basement dwelling. Uh, well, they, yes, they do. But like, I was thinking... One's uh, not torturing people. Uh, well, one is very obvious. The pol- politics uh, are pretty obvious. Uh, people under the stairs. You yeah. know, Wes Craven. Uh, you know, I saw this as a kid and, and loved it and probably got some of the ideas. I got none of it. I remember yeah. seeing it as a kid. And for me, it was just weirdo people in leather which I didn't catch at the time, um, who kept kids in their basement yeah. until they were mutants. And I read none of the politics. I mean, I was wearing times. these leathers as a kid when I watched it. You were it. wearing the full gimp suit full while you were watching kid. it. And you were like, oh, dude, he yeah, took yeah. my outfit. That's, that, that was my style. I know you're in there, boy. <laughs> um, no, but, but this movie is, you know, pretty overt. Like Wes Craven, I think, is, is great, you know, often with some of his subtext. and But this one is like really just goes all out. Sometimes they're not clear. It's a little muddled. Yeah, this one, it gets silly to the yeah. point. Um, it definitely has these silly moments, which yeah. kind of covers up a lot of the social messaging, But this I one think. feels more like, uh, whereas They Live feels like right in the heart of Reaganism, this feels like the right post-Reaganism. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, we're, if we're calling uh, Cheap Thrills recession horror, this one would be like gentrification horror. I would definitely right? agree with that. This yes. is total gentrification slum lords, horror. Slumlords, basically. Yeah, because it's slumlords who have this beautiful mansion in the middle of the slums, but they've built this like crazy gate around it and don't let anybody in but yeah. yet they keep the slums as the slums and continue to grow rich off of the shitty communities around right. them yeah like they're um, racist but they're willing to uh, mix with other people as long as it's to take the money and you know so basically what's fun is about the setup is uh, you know it, it's it's um, uh, Ving Rhames and uh, uh, his young I think his friend's like son or something uh, fool. fool yeah who decide to kind of whoa why don't we break into the slumlord's house and we'll steal from them if they're gonna if they're gonna exploit us so i love already that they're going with these kind of characters that you want to see victorious you mm-hmm. want to see them but what's fun about the story is that they they quickly reveal not just uh, that these people were you know bad slumlords but that they're also have imprisoned other children who are now almost like weird zombie vampiric well they have this characters. this belief system which is i mean obviously symbolism the fear no evil see no evil yeah. um speak no, no evil and um, and it's very much kind of about like closing yourself off to everything around you. Like don't see it, don't say it, don't speak it, don't hear it um, and close yourself off to everything around. And so anytime that the children reveal the truth in any capacity, they get their eyes cut out, they get their tongue cut out. Yeah, and, I, I can't remember where the kids come from. If they're just abducted kids, they're obviously not there. No good children. baby stealers. That's, I just yeah, remember that line. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like raising Arizona. They're just out there stealing they're babies. They're stealing babies. But, but it, is, it is interesting seeing. So what's smart is like you, you promote this horror film like oh the monsters are they going to be these creepy things on the stairs and then you realize very quickly like actually they're not the horror of this movie they're the they're the victims mm-hmm. of this film and then we get back again we have an incestual uh, almost royal-ish family who have com- cut themselves off there it turned out to be brother and sister by the end of the film again uh, going back to the incestuous wealthy yeah definitely know. especially with you know the royal family it's just you know these are ideas that have been around forever uh, they're hilarious they're also you know the cast directly off Twin it's Peaks, funny how fun. inbreeding always happens if you're super wealthy or super or poor, super yeah. poor. that's yeah. you, you, those that's are where good, you find your inbreeding I guess the super poor it was always because it was harder to travel to get to other people and the riches to keep your yeah, bloodline yeah rural isolated communities yeah. then you would have the the rumors of 
be inbreeding as well. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the, this, this one's pretty straightforward. I mean, like I said, it can get it, get, it gets muddled with all the plot points because it kind of keeps adding layers. As soon as he puts on a gimp suit and yeah. starts shooting up the walls, I kind of still even lose the social messaging yeah. watching it, it now. But, you do yeah. a little bit, but it's but it is playful and fun, and it's like you know. You could also, I saw a couple uh, commentators kind of comparing it to like Ronald and Nancy Reagan, which I thought was kind of amusing <laughs> to think of them together in a Ronald Reagan in a gimp outfit. Um, but uh, but I do think like the idea of the, the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil feels about in, be staying insular. Uh, and, and if we wanted to compare this film to our current, it would be both, whether you're liberal or, or conservative, the problem has been that everyone's sticking to just that. Yeah, message. I'm just sticking my hands in my right, ears exactly. and, and, and whistling while I don't listen. Yeah. Makes a division deeper and impossible to bridge. So it does feel like it's it's kind of touching on those messages. It, it's it's a fun movie. Um, and it's really, he's really, I think, pushing these kind of ideas. I think it was based on a true story, at least the part of people breaking into a house and discovering somebody being held captive which again mm-hmm. don't breathe is kind of that kind of a story too yeah. recently which is interesting oh but yeah it's don't not breathe definitely <laughs> falls into that as well which i have to say is very similar to another film um from kind of the french extremism livid mm-hmm. um yeah which L- wasn't livid, extreme, i thought about but it was around the same time yeah livid um i don't even think you can find it here it, in it hasn't States. got an american release but so, it's a very beautiful looking movie yeah livid by um the inside director yeah the guys who directed inside, inside yeah. um and it's a french film about um, this group of kind of, uh, I'll call them juvenile delinquents, is the same setup as Don't Speak, who decide to break into this incredibly wealthy mansion and find... That you know, I it's think one not, of them. Well, one of them takes like a babysitting job, and then I, I comes back the next day to break in. It's um, she's taking care of a woman who's yeah, on a ventilator. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she decides since the woman's completely incapacitated, she's going to break in and steal some of her belongings with her cohorts. And what they find is that there's there she's not alone in the house. That there's yeah. other horrors there. Um, the Weinstein's bought the film before it ever got released in the U.S. and had planned to do a remake of Livid. Hmm. And I remember that they like put the kibosh on it coming stateside so that they could preserve it for the remake and then the remake never happened. It, so, it, Livid yeah. is literally the perfect Shudder title that's not on Shudder yet. Like right? once they get that, it, it, it will find an audience because it's it's really gorgeous it's to look at. It's beautifully shot. It, it hasn't got, um, you know, when the story is very thin and, it, and it's very simple, but that kind of allows the beauty to kind of mm-hmm. be the thing you kind of latch onto. Yeah, it hasn't got quite the energy that Inside has and, and Inside kind of pulsates, right? Well, it also, way. I mean, Livid, I wouldn't classify as French extremism. It's bloody, but it's yeah. not like inside or frontiers or martyrs where I just spend the entire time feeling like I'm just like I need a shower at the no, end. No, yeah, it, do, it does seem a little more subtle, but it do, yeah, you're right. It definitely ties in with this kind of movie. And they're a little different because are they about the 1% or are they about the, they're almost like about the both that and don't breathe are about, it's almost like they're the next generation from this conversation, which is the children of the generation who are part of this 99% who are getting screwed in these other movies, these children are now bored and restless and, trying and to still take have nothing. And yeah, and go, well, fuck it. We des- we can take this back from them without... Like the Robin Hoods. Almost but, like we deserve yeah. it, but they're doing it in really bad things. Because remember, I mean, it's this, one of the smart things about Don't Breathe is that's not cool what they're doing. No, they're, 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 they're not good guys. People. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so it's like sticking sticking the audience with these protagonists who aren't great people. And same with Cheap Thrills. A lot of these people end up start to turn to the point mm-hmm. where you're like, I can't really side with them, but you still have no choice because the alternative 
is that much worse. Somebody yes. who's even worse. And maybe that's where a lot of us feel politically at times that well, I can choose between, oh, that suck or this suck. But we do have to yeah. also point out that that is also the case in people who on um, people under the stairs because they are yeah. literally breaking. It's the same setup, breaking into their house yeah. to steal all their belongings because they're jerk asses that, you know, control well, the whole slum. And in that one, I, that one, it's a little easier because if you portray the baddies as so bad and over the top, it's easy to just go, yes, They're girl. caricatures. Yeah, they, they are this, becoming But I don't know what their caricatures are of, <laughs> no. but they're... They're just, they're so over the top that you can only describe them. (laughs) It's easy, easy, low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) So then the last one that we wanted to talk about, um, so Elric and I kind of share this this love of deep Deep cuts. cuts. We want want our own spinoff. Yeah, one day we're going to do a spinoff called Elric and Becca's Deep Deep Cuts, cuts. um, where we just talk about horror films that very few people have seen, ones that kind of get forgotten by time. And this is definitely one of those, but it's one that both of us kind of love. And that is The People Who Own the Dark. Yeah, kind of. Uh, so, director's guy Leo Kaminsky made a lot of films from '76 Spanish film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Nashi has a role. It's not a typical Paul Nashi film by any nope. means, but it's just interesting to see him in this film. But yeah, this is like this could also go into what like a dystopia, end of the world type sci-fi as it well. It feels like a zombie film. Right. It feels like a yeah, I'll say an apocalyptic zombie film, but it doesn't start that way, and it's got a lot of other overtones to it. So the whole setup of people who in the dark is that um, this wealthy dude owns this crazy castle in the middle of nowhere, and he decides to invite a whole bunch of other wealthy dudes out there, and then essentially they have an eyes wide shut party. Yeah, where they're they, going to have a big orgy. Yeah, they invite in all of these, um, I don't want to call them prostitutes because they're definitely more like upper... But they still were. I mean, yeah. They, and, and again, so even if you stop the story there, it's already about... The exploitation yeah. of someone, right? Yeah, we can it's get a, away with this and we're exploiting. It's an Epstein party. That's so, what yeah, they're setting up. They, yeah. they set up this massive kind of anything goes, we've hired all these prostitutes orgy in this underground dungeon of a castle, this like crazy wealthy guy. And while they are having this crazy, and it's even, it's very eyes wide shut, like they have masks on, they're buck naked except for these crazy feather masks. Um, and so they have their fun orgy, but while this is going on, there's nuclear holocaust. Like, well, I will interrupt you because one of the most heartbreaking parts is they only are just starting the orgy. I'm sorry, and so it really interrupts the orgy. <laughs> it does. I was very disappointed. Just as just as the first clothing's coming off, suddenly the place is shaking, and I'm like, oh come on, you couldn't. They didn't even get to go <laughs> full orgy. Go full, full, That's um, how the nuclear holocaust works, Elric. It interrupts you at the best moments of your life. But they're and they're also not just rich people; they're powerful. And one of them, before those events start get some sort of call where he's kind of warned that yes. there could be some sort of attack. So it's also that idea of insider knowledge. I love to protect There's going to be a nuclear holocaust. He's I'm like, going to be at my rich weirdo orgy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. going to the orgy first. Cool. But, but because they're insulated because they're in a mansion. and so It's stone castle stone, and they're yeah. way underground. Um, everyone else on Earth gets hit with this massive flash during the nuclear attack and are all blinded immediately and also kind of disfigured and fucked up and they, they seem to also kind of lose it mentally. But before we went in, I can't remember they, when they show him, but there's an actual blind man at the start who somebody slightly mistreats at like the train station yep. and it just looks at him as different and doesn't treat him that well. He's a, he's blind before the story count. So it's that, you know, it's that classic, you know, in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man, the king. The, the person who was blind, of course, would have uh, be so much more acclimat- uh, acclimatized to how to survive in this world. Yeah, so, so after the flash, everybody goes blind, um, except for these the, the rich weirdos then emerge from the underground yeah. bunker orgy and are like, whoa, what happened? And what they suddenly find out is that 
they are kind of the last people on earth with sight. From what they know. Yeah. And at least in the town, because I think the town was having a massive, um, some sort of massive outdoor party. Yep. So almost everyone was accounted for. So everyone is becoming uh, desperate. And so we see these incredible scenes of just like, you know, 50 blind people just, you know, lunging for each other and going in circles. And really you see them almost like the start of what would then become like zombie type yep. figures. And it's, and it's pretty, pretty well done. Uh, and what they do straight away is they actually come across that blind guy and the blind guy's like, oh, you need to get the actual blind man who was blind before the events. And he's like, you must come and help us. And they go, okay, sure, sure. And then they forget about him and instead go raid all the food and take everything in the town for themselves. The guns, they have it like the purge movie. They have all the best guns. They have all that. And, and the blind man does not forget this. Uh, and later on, one of them's a little more trigger happy and he keeps freaking out every time they're around and ends up starting to kill some of these blind people which basically starts triggering a war uh, war and and the and the people who are in the dark who i will take literally as the blind guy yeah because he can own the dark because it's he wasn't just a, he's now able to lead this revolt back to take them and it gets really you know violent and strange and uh you see how quickly the inner dynamics of the rich turning against each other throwing the prostitutes out yeah first. like literally at first they're like oh we'll take care of you baby but then as soon as the shit gets real it's immediately like sorry you're out and yeah. they're they're literally throwing them to the wolves yeah no it's 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 got a really interesting energy and it's it's a very you know again without knowing more about uh, the, I mean, 76, so I know it's g- going to be some commentary on a post-Franco, or, you know, something in there. And this does feel, it feels like Euro trash. Like, yeah. And it's, I mean, we've got, we open with an orgy. It is Euro yeah. trash, but it's fantastic. The beginnings of an orgy. I'm the beginnings of an orgy. <laughs> but that said, I mean, most Euro trash, I can kind of, you know, I always find that there's some type of um, social messaging in a yeah. lot of the Euro trashy films. When and it this leads one to, is a big one. Yeah, and it leads to, some, you know, it, 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 it besides the, obviously, these guys, the blind getting their revenge on this group, uh, it also starts to lead to a slightly bigger ending, mm-hmm. which is making some commentary that we're all we're all expendable. Uh, you know, it's kind of Soylent Greenish where it heads without yes. totally spoiling it. Uh, it does take a weird shift. Yeah, in it, the third it, act, it, yeah. It, by the very end, you are left with a, a pure sci-fi dystopia movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you know it's an interesting movie, and again, it's it's not it's not like you know you don't expect a perfect movie from your these kind of European films from that period. But it's a very interesting uh, kind of weird energy. Uh, kink movie. Yeah. It is. It's kink, yeah, but it's post-apocalyptic. Like yeah. Um, so every time I teach horror class, every single time I teach kind of the horror genre, I always do a lesson on predicting genres, like mm. where they're going to go, subgenres, like, you know, are we about to have another slasher boom or are vampires going to be the next big thing and kind of looking at the cyclical nature. And every semester I do this, and for the past two semesters, I have said that we're going to start seeing more social commentary in horror because of where we are politically right now, because we are so bifurcated, because it's always become, well, which side are you on? Literally splitting entire families to the point where, like, my own family had to say, like, we're not going to talk about this at 4th of July. No one's allowed to mention a damn thing because it would literally just turn into a them versus them. There's another important element, uh... And it's very, it is related, but it might be even more important than that. And that is the uh, de- democratization of 
how to make movies, mm-hmm. uh, which means, you know, we never, like what Francis Ford Coppola said 50 or 45 years ago, he said, you know, this will not be an art form until it's as cheap as a uh, pen and paper and a little girl in Iowa can make a movie. And we are We're at there. that stage. We are. I'm that, so, um, I'm elated and almost scared at times that when I think about it, every single one of my students carries their entire film production studio with them all the time. Right. They have all their editing software. They have cameras ready to go. They could literally make movies at a moment's notice with the majority of the stuff they have in their backpacks. Right. So, and then what that changes is that this, the stranglehold of, so now we can take our conversation, what we've been talking about today, which is the 1%. Well, the 1% goes to Hollywood too. Who controlled the apparatus of making movies mm-hmm. is the white male uh, it, for forever. It's 120 years of one kind of uh, dominant figure and the kind of stories being told. So suddenly it's not going to happen overnight, but suddenly other voices can start making films and they're going to have a lot to say. And if they're into horror, the way Jordan Peele was, they're going to have a lot to say and they're going to put it in that framework and we're going to start to see very different stories uh, about some of these social groups that we've never really seen. There, I can think of, off the top of my head, multiple groups I've never seen a horror film made by yeah. that makes me completely interested to know what what rep- what has been repressed, what is what is seething out of someone. And it's that I feel lucky that we're going to get that wave of new movies and yeah. then we'll keep reanimating a genre that you know can't really die it keeps getting reinvented even even old stories are new again when a new kind of voice says it. And I know that a lot of critics are kind of, um, or at least some of the older school ones, kind of bemoan the saturation and the prolificness of films right now, that we do have such a saturation of horror because literally anybody can make a horror film. So there's just so much of it right now. But in that, we do start to get a diversity. We do start to get a large amount of voices. And we are hearing from people who, 25 years ago could not make a horror film yeah. and, that's and the leads are beautiful. changing too you know mm-hmm. I, I look at the vampire film transfiguration uh, you just subtle uh, shifts you take the same story but you change the casting from the norm and suddenly it just a movie opens up a girl walks home alone at night suddenly you're just like oh okay that's interesting transfiguration is a really good one to talk about when you yeah. talk about kind of social um and that was one that i loved because it was it was heavy-handed but it wasn't about that i mean we thought we were watching kind of a vampire story but at yeah. the same time it is in this kind of um new jersey slummy area we're dealing with ptsd we're dealing with suicide drug addiction child abuse and all this stuff is kind of happening it's like the b storyline like it's like b and c um to the a storyline of kid thinks he may be a vampire and so that was another one that was like really kind of digging in on this social messaging but doing it subtly no i mean there's a lot of titles out there that can explore and we're scratching the surface with one part of that, with the one percent, um, which is you know one trend we're seeing this year, and it will cycle out. But I think there's so many other stories and other angles on this kind of critique and horror that it's 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 exciting to me as a film lover, as somebody who uh, wants to make movies. Right, like there's so much to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's easier to me to do it in the horror genre than any other genre. I think so too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Elric. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, I am on Twitter uh, with my name, Elric Kane, uh, on Instagram with my name, Elric Kane. Uh, I have no fancy handle. I don't need a handle. Uh, I'm with you every Wednesday night on Shockwaves. Yes, you can check out Shockwaves podcast if you want to listen to us talk more about horror. We're usually more combative on that show than we are here. You know, we are together part of the 99% today. It's totally true. (laughs) Neither Um, of us have anyone. You're right. (laughs) Oh, I 
vibe on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we can also listen to Pure Cinema. Where can we find that? Uh, Pure Cinema, you can find uh, on any uh, any kind of uh, listening device, I believe. All podcasts are up there in the cloud somewhere. But uh, we have some good for you know horror listeners. Even though we do all movies, we just did a very fun horror all-nighter where we programmed an all-nighter of different horror films. That, so if you're looking for some deep dives, that's a fun episode to start with for our listeners. Nice. And uh, we'll see you back next season for 90s thrillers. Uh, 90s yuppie thrillers. 90s yuppie thrillers. Because they have to be yuppies. They do. Uh, I'm all about it. Thank you guys so much. I will see you next week for another episode of Nightmare University. Please find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Have a good one. Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Kozlerich, and Rachel Wilson.